Good evening. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for your patience. And we're glad to have you here this evening with us for another Rare Book School evening lecture. This evening, our special guest and lecturer is Kanohi Nishikawa. And Kanohi is an associate professor of English and African American Studies at Princeton University. His first book, Street Players, Black Pulp Fiction in the Making of a Literary Underground, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. He is currently working on a project that considers how cover and book design has influenced the production and reception of modern African American literature. And that just sounds fantastic to me. Uh, but the subject for tonight's talk is what you've all been waiting for. The talk from poet to publisher, reading Gwendolyn Brooks by design. Take it away, Kanohi. Thank you, Michael and Rare Book School for the invitation to speak with you this evening. Robin and Barbara for their organizational support and everyone in the virtual audience for your attendance at this talk. I send special greetings to this summer's class of fellows and students uh, who are conducting work under difficult, but I hope ultimately rewarding circumstances. Book history, textual criticism, and the study of rare books have a tremendous amount to learn from this moment. Where can book history intersect with the burgeoning movement to support Black-owned bookstores? How do we practice anti-racism in bibliographic description? And what might it mean to hold the institutions that define the rare in rare books to anti-racist account? Acquisitions, cataloging, and outreach, yes. But what about dealers' descriptions, appraisers' valuations, and not least, scholars' self-justifying canons? My talk this evening is a small contribution to this ongoing effort, one whose significance has been underscored by the events of this summer. At stake for me is historicizing one poet's life's work, not by predetermined literary periodizations, but by at-hand empirical methods. At-hand because they are accessible and teachable, and empirical because they require tactile observation and engagement. These are methods the poet herself upheld throughout her career. So you might say this talk attempts to honor Gwendolyn Brooks as a theorist of the book. The United States had just entered the closing phase of war when Harper and Brothers published Gwendolyn Brooks's debut poetry collection on August 15, 1945. Though Japan had announced its surrender the day before, the signing of the documents making it official was still a few weeks away. A street in Bronzeville mirrored this uncertain timing. On the back of the book's dust jacket, underneath the poet's photograph and biographical sketch, is a message punctuated by Brooks's signature. It begins with an anonymous soldier's harried dispatch. Remember, when you read laudatory accounts of us in the newspapers that killing Japs wins Hill 250, not victory necessarily. Brooks is then quoted as saying, that is the unhappy warning we have from an infantryman in New Guinea a soldier who, like others and others and others, has not found it pleasant to watch men he laughed with fall about him, abruptly crumpled dreams. No, the war is not yet won, 
nor should we dare breathe deeply till every act of hostility has come to an end. She counsels that buying extra war bonds is the surest means of speeding the end of the war and guaranteeing future personal advantages as well. Brooks could not have known the end of the war was near when this message was drafted. Then again, the words likely were not hers to begin with. The message is at odds, tonally and stylistically, with several of the collection's poems. The sardonic Negro hero, for example, begins, I had to kick their law into their teeth in order to save them, and proceeds to reflect on a black soldier's sacrifice for a country that would rather die than accept him as a full-fledged citizen. The 12 poem sequence Gay Chaps at the Bar, meanwhile, describes black soldiers returning from the front, men who, having survived the war, confront a different kind of enemy in their backyard. Still we remark on patriotism, sing, salute the flag, thrill heavily, rejoice, for death of men who too saluted, sang, but inward grows a soberness, an awe, a fear, a deepening hollow through the cold. Throughout A Street in Bronzeville, the dream of victory abroad is undercut by the persistence of discrimination at home. Eschewing celebratory rhetoric, Brooks advances what Vaughn Raspberry called a litmus test for official wartime claims made on behalf of the liberal democratic order. Her servicemen, are haunted not by the horrors of war, but by what they discover coming back. Though the personality on the dust jacket may have been incompatible with the poet of these lines, Harper probably calculated that casting Brooks, a working class mother from Bronzeville, a black neighborhood on Chicago's South Side, as a supporter of the war effort was the best way to sell copies of the book. Advertising for war bonds, too, would have helped Harper justify using scarce paper resources to continue printing books for leisure reading. For her part, Brooks, like many a first-time author, may have concluded that getting into print required concessions to her publisher, including signing off on publicity from the marketing department, which would have been responsible for the dust jacket. As critical of the country's treatment of black soldiers as her poetry was, Brooks had to shore up support for the armed services on the domestic front in her book. However, even this show of support became outdated once Japan's surrender was finalized on September 2nd. Just a few weeks old, A Street in Bronzeville was already due for a reprint, one in keeping with a peacetime milieu. On October 22nd, Brooks wrote to her editor, Elizabeth Lawrence, about seeing the book's new dust jacket. What was my great delight not so long ago to come across a street in Bronzeville in its second edition? As you can imagine, I stared at those words a very long time. The back of the cover is grand. It's no coincidence that Brooks focused on the back, for that is where the only discernible change had been made. In place of the war bonds message are four blurbs under the banner critical acclaim. Rackham Holt, Jay Saunders Redding, Carl Van Vecten, and Buckland Moon praise Brooks's command of poetic language and ear for detail. Yet as much as the accolades please Brooks, their effect is to inscribe her in benign accommodating terms. As Holt puts it, she reflects her own people in particular and speaks for all people in general. 
breezing over the paradoxes of citizenship that Brooks's poetry locates in the distance between Bronzeville and the nation, the blurbs fold the book into familiar terms for the white reception of Negro literature. Pinging between American militarism and raceless universalism, Harper's quickfire marketing of a street in Bronzeville is a reminder of how black writers had to conform to national and geopolitical prerogatives during this time. The two jackets presage the Indian American novelist Jhumpa Lahiri's own experience in the publishing industry decades later. When my books were first published, Lahiri writes in The Clothing of Books, I discovered that another part of me had to be dressed and presented to the world. But what is wrapped around my words, my book covers, is not of my choosing. In this unusually candid reflection on the publishing industry, Lahiri complains about the mismatch between her words and her covers, the substance of her writing and the package in which it arrives. Most of my book jackets don't fit me, she notes, elaborating that the wrong cover is cumbersome, suffocating, or like a too tight sweater, inadequate. This is a problem for Lahiri insofar as the jacket is not only the text's first clothing, but also its first interpretation, both visual and for sales promotion. In other words, even though the design of the jacket is beyond the author's control, it remains the most visible point of connection between her artistic vocation and her public. By the end of the clothing of books, the image Lahiri leaves in our mind is that of the author stepping out into the world in attire she did not choose nor was fitted for. Brooks did not leave behind so definite a statement on how she felt about her covers during her career. Still, I want to argue tonight that what we are able to piece together from her published work and archive papers suggests a lifelong concern with book design and specifically with finding the right fit for her po poetry. These things mattered to Brooks not because she wanted her covers to accord with her words, but because she wanted her words to resonate among certain kinds of readers. Brooks would have acknowledged Lahiri's point that design is tethered to the imperatives of promotion and marketing. However, where Lahiri conceives the outward-facing nature of design as detracting from her work, Brooks viewed the same as an opportunity for reinvention, breathing new meaning into already established published poetry and connecting new work to those she considered her first readers, the Black working class denizens of Bronzeville. Design, in short, became a way for Brooks to think seriously about the dynamics of readership at a particular moment in time, as well as shifts in readership over a long stretch of time. In advancing this claim, I aver Brooks to have had a continuous investment in her reception among Black Chicagoans, one that began on unsure footing in 1945, but that grew more pronounced as she transitioned from Harper to small regional presses and finally to self-publishing. While critics have long argued that Brooks's move away from Harper and toward the Black arts movement allowed her to compose more radical poetry, in fact, the changes she made to her art are registered most clearly at the level of book and cover design. Ultimately, in tracing her design trajectory from New York to Detroit and Chicago and back to her own doorstep, I show how Brooks was always trying to find ways of making her poetic voice look more like home. 
Brooks's earliest correspondence with Harper reveals the germ of this desire. She submitted her manuscript for Street in Bronzeville on July 18, 1944. At the end of her cover letter, she wrote, if you find it acceptable, I can furnish illustrations for as many of the poems as you would like by a well-known Chicago interpreter of Negro life. In the only surviving copy of the letter, someone at Harper, possibly Elizabeth Lawrence, wrote, who in the margin? We do not know if Brooks answered the question or whether it was asked of her directly, but the fact that this unpublished poet in search of her first book contract broached the topic cannot be ignored. In proposing a collaboration with a local artist, Brooks was not only venturing a visual compliment to her poetry, she was making a case for a street in Bronzeville's specificity of place. The power of the collection lay in its details of the black community in Chicago, not in some vague notion of the universalism of experience. Though this aspect of the project was not realized, raising the possibility constitute an, constituted an effort to shrink the distance between Chicago and New York. The effort may not have been in vain. Brooks's second book, The Poetry Collection Annie Allen, was published by Harper in 1949. Liesel Olson notes in Chicago Renaissance that the illustrator books referred to in 1944 likely was Ernest Alexander, a New Jersey-born artist living in Chicago at the time. This time she did not ask for feedback. She sent his work directly to Harper on March 11, 1949. The result is that Alexander's sketched profile of Brooks appears on the back of the dust jacket as well as on the glossy frontispiece to the book. The doubling draws an implicit link between poet and persona, Gwendolyn Brooks and Annie Allen. On its own, the profile gives the appearance of informality, a sketch started and finished on the date noted in the bottom corner. In fact, the drawing is a study of line, shading, and contrast, with line defining the woman's features and shading adding texture to her hair. Though classically posed, she is rendered in a vernacular visual grammar. On the back cover, the drawing conveys Brooks's commitment to craft, her mastery and reimagining of form. As an uncaptioned frontispiece, it introduces Annie to be the subject of her own thoughts and observations. The dissonance that comes out of recognizing this both is and isn't Brooks demarcates a zone of privacy for Annie herself. In this, Alexander's drawing complements Brooks's exploration of what Elizabeth Alexander has called the Black interior. For although uncareful readers might approach the volume as the story of a Black girl they already know, Alexander's double drawing suggests Annie Allen, traversing the boundary between art and life, contains multitudes. Though Annie Allen earned the 1950 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, the volume was not a commercial success. In fact, Brooks's royalty statements reveal modest sales across her Harper books. The question of how to market Brooks must have loomed large at the company. On one hand, her work came out of the same milieu about which fellow Harper author Richard Wright wrote his best-selling novel, Native Son. Something of that book's gritty social realism can be seen in a street on Bronzeville's jacket which features the title and poet's name in bold sans serif type set against an illustration of a brick wall cast in shadows. 
Yet the tortured externalization of racial angst and rights hard-boiled prose was always going to be a misfit for Brooks. So the company went in a different direction for Annie Allen. Here, hand-drawn textual elements are set against a pink background and organized above and below a floral drawing. The design is framed by darker borders whose corners are anchored by ornaments. This obviously gendered approach did not spur sales either, so Harper combined realism with decoration in the jacket for Brooks's novel, Maud Martha. In the illustrated part of the cover, an illuminated house is set against the tightly packed kitchenette buildings that make up the larger Southside neighborhood. As if to underscore the shabbiness of that locale, the cover is colored in a dark, even muddy brown. The textual information is hand-drawn, accentuating the intimacy of this domestic setting. But with only the title and poet's name illuminated, the effect is still one of Maud Martha standing out from her surroundings, white contrasting with brown, rather than a probing of the black interior. When gender, Brooks versus Wright, was not a clear point of comparison, Brooks saw her books compete with white writers' work on adjacent topics. Here, though, when it came to marketing, racial particularity was more comfortably assigned to whites. In 1960, Shirley Smith designed the jackets for Brooks's The Bean Eaters and Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Striking in its simplicity, the design for Lee's novel is iconic, the image of a tree bent with age, combined with the rich reddish-brown backdrop, evokes the strange fruit of racial prejudice in the Deep South. The Bean Eaters likewise shows Smith's penchant for per perspectival flatness. In this case, however, the decorative elements yield a less compelling vision. Doilies. Now, while that sense of delicate old age could relate to the title poem's wizened figures, it does not capture the feeling of protest behind poems such as a Bronzeville mother loiters in Mississippi, meanwhile a Mississippi mother burns bacon, and the last quatrain of the Ballad of Emmett Till. This diptych seats to, uh, speaks to how the brutal murder of the Chicago teenager by white vigilantes in Mississippi on August 28, 1955, galvanized the civil rights movement. To be sure, Brooks's mode of protest is not an outward expression of rage. Jacqueline Goldsby argues that in this sequence, Brooks sidesteps the mass media coverage of Till's death to present an alternate vision, the quietness of maybe Till Bradley's grieving the loss of her son. And so unlike the photographs exposing Till's corpse or showing his mother's tear-streaked face, Brooks's domestic scenes mean to reveal the secret of her private suffering. Smith avoids the seduction of documentary truth, and her design does evoke the domestic. But one cannot shake the feeling that Lee's novel, instead of the bean eaters, received the more apt treatment. Instead of Bradley's interiority, we are left with the backflap's banal observation that Miss Brooks' voice is that of a poet always. Her concern is with the human fact, the universal truth. Now, there was one exception to Brooks's modest sales, Bronzeville Boys and Girls, a 1956 children's book illustrated by Ronnie Silbert. In this case, Brooks's poetry seemed to match Harper's desire for marketability. Composed in the first and third person voice, 
Brooks's vignettes embodied pers the perspectives of children who live in her South Side neighborhood, the playmates of her son and daughter, Henry and Nora, to whom the book is dedicated. Yet correspondence between Brooks and Harper reveals that the production of Bronzeville Boys and Girls was contentious. In addition to explicit disagreement concerning royalty rates, there was muted discord in the initial choice of illustrator, Garth Williams. In one sense, the American-born English Ray's Williams was an ideal pick, having illustrated E.B. White's Stuart Little, White Charlotte's Web, and the reissue of Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie series, all for Harper. Williams' illustrations made an indelible impression on children, and the long life of his reprints indicates that they did the same for generations of readers. However, his bucolic portfolio may not have been suitable for a picture book set in a Black neighborhood in Chicago. Children's books editor Ursula Nordstrom, who had given Williams his first commission, was hardly reassuring. I'm glad you like the work of Garth Williams, she wrote Brooks. We certainly wouldn't want pictures of pickaninnies in a Harper book. That this slur for a Black child used more commonly in the South came up in their exchange suggests a representational minefield of which Brooks would have been acutely aware and to which Nordstrom was not so attuned. As it turned out, Williams did not end up working on the project, but his replacement brought a more diverse outlook to the table. Born in Washington, D.C., Ronnie Solbert had graduated from Vassar in 1946 and went on to her, earn her MFA from Cranbrook Academy of Art in 1948. In 1950, she moved to New York and studied in African-American artist and printmaker Robert Blackburn's creative graphic workshop. After that apprenticeship, Solbert pursued parallel careers, first in creating abstract expressionist paintings and prints, and second in freelance illustrating children's books and magazine stories. Her first illustrations were for books by Jean Merrill, to whom Solbert would remain a devoted companion for 50 years. This was to be Solbert's first commission for Harper, but her time with Blackburn likely made Solbert a unique choice out of all illustrators, a white artist who understood the stakes of racial representation. The result is a sensitive portrayal of urban youth that, in keeping with Brooks's voice, is realistic not on the level of social facts, but in the realm of the familiar and intimate. Importantly, by not shading in any figure's features, Solbert leaves racial identity to be interpreted through the lines of her drawings, an aesthetic not unlike that displayed in Ernest Alexander's sketch of the poet for Annie Allen. Now, even though this was Brooks's most successful title with Harper, it was upstaged not long after publication by another children's book, this one written and illustrated by Garth Williams. In 1958, Harper published his children's book, about a love that develops between a white female rabbit and a black male rabbit, which ends in their happy nuptials in the forest. The obvious allegorical meaning of the rabbit's wedding drew the ire of some white readers in the South. In Alabama, for example, the White Citizens Council of Montgomery attacked the book for promoting racial integration at the height of the civil rights movement. The director of the state's public libraries did not bow to public pressure to ban the book, but she did order it put on reserve, taking it off open shelves. 
Harper issued a statement on Williams' behalf, arguing that the rabbit's wedding bore no political significance and that the color contrast only came from the idea, in a nod to his upbringing on a farm, that a white horse next to a black horse looks very picturesque. In short, the book was not written for adults who will not understand it because it is only about a soft, furry love and has no hidden messages of hate. Was he being serious or tongue-in-cheek? William's statement left enough room to plausibly disavow race and why it mattered to his story. Harper once again fell back on appeals to universal feeling. Now, in 1967, Brooks attended the second Black Writers' Conference at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, a major gathering of figures associated with the Black arts movement. That event, combined with the lingering effects of Elizabeth Lawrence's retirement from Harper in 1964, convinced Brooks to leave the New York publishing scene and work instead with independent Black-owned small presses in Detroit and Chicago. The move entailed a decisive shift in readership as Detroit's Broadside Press, founded by Dudley Randall, and Chicago's Third World Press, co-founded by Don Lee, later Haki Matabudi, Carolyn Rogers, and Jewel Lattimore, later Johari Amini, were committed to producing print media for the Black reading public. Critics have taken that move to mean Brooks changed the way she wrote poetry, becoming more radicalized as she sought to engage Black readers directly. Fisk, in George Kent's off-cited account, would initiate a fundamental change in the poet's consciousness, her commitment to art and audience, and her perception of the Black situation in America. Yet, as Liesl Olson observes of the arc of her career, Brooks was political from the start, her poetry often confounding the very white readership that purchased it and attended her readings. So Fisk, while important to her sense of what was possible, may not have entailed such a momentous break with the past. Indeed, what I will show is that the opportunity presented to her by the Black arts movement was not to write a different kind of poetry, but to align her book's designs with the Bronzeville she knew and loved. Published by Broadside Press in 1969, Brooks's chapbook Riot was conceived in response to the disturbances in Chicago after the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. This source of inspiration may have sounded like a radical turn for the poet, whose Harper packaging registered nary a hint of civil rights agitation. However, in style and substance, the collection's verse is not worlds away from her previous work. For example, the opening poem, Riot, zooms in on the moment when John Cabot, a materialistic white man from the suburbs, finds himself overwhelmed by urban revolt. But in a thrilling announcement, on it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pigfoot, chitterling and cheap chili, malign, mocked John. Though no doubt attuned to the politics of the moment, the form of this section of riot echoes Brooks's poem, A Bronzeville Mother, from the Bean Eaters. In both cases, alliteration and imagery related to Southern food evoke the everydayness of simmering racial violence. And while the tables may have been turned on John Cabot, both he and the earlier poem's presumptive subject, Carolyn Bryant, the white woman whose accusation of impropriety spurred Till's murder, 
are most haunted by blackness when the fume or pungent smoke of cooking hits them. If Brooks's poetic style had not changed appreciably over the 1960s, what made her black arts output distinctive was the material form it took. Most importantly, the movement's emphasis on community-oriented black graphic design and illustration was consistently applied to Brooks's work. The striking cover of Riot, for example, was the work of Detroit artist Cleetie Taylor. Taylor had designed the broadside version of Brooks's catchy We Real Cool in 1966. That poem was part of Randall's broadside series of single sheet works combining trenchant, socially re relevant verse with eye-catching graphic design. Sold for modest sums and posted all over the city, these broadsides exposed ordinary people to protest poetry through the familiar visual cues. The text of We Real Cool, for example, is lettered to look like something scrawled on a chalkboard, underscoring the links between the school and the pool room of the poem's urban imaginary. The series' grassroots success led to the establishment of the press, named in honor of the format that connected art to everyday life. When Randall expanded operations to include chapbooks, anthologies, and other media, he made sure that graphic artists like Taylor remained an integral part of the production process. That emphasis can certainly be seen on the cover for Riot. Taylor creates a meaningful contrast between the title and Brooks's name. The bold overlapping lettering of Riot reflects the thick sociality of mass protest that Brooks animates in her poetry. The title's red color and its encirclement within, within what looks like a bullet hole perfectly capture the nexus of white violence and black rage that the death of Dr. King signified. In a letter to Brooks, Randall described Taylor's design choices as crazy tilted red letters contained in a balloon that she had moved all over the cover to find its most effective place. That these elements are set off from the tasteful, measured, and even elegant typeface used for Brooks's name is a visual reminder of where her art has been and where it is moving toward. It's a design suited for the chapbook whose medium-specific qualities, affordable and handy, already distinguished it from Brooks's Harper hardcovers. What makes Wright distinctly of Black Chicago is the chapbook's frontispiece a color reproduction of Jeff Donaldson's painting, a la Shango. Donaldson had been affiliated with the visual workshop of the Organization for Black American Culture, or OBASI, a Southside collective that sought to create art by and for the Black community. OBASI's most memorable achievement was to put up the Wall of Respect, a mural celebrating Black political and culture heroes from Nat Turner to Muhammad Ali. By 1969, Donaldson and other artists had broken off to form Cobra, <clears throat> short for the Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, which later went by Afro-Cobra. Alashango is infused by the communal groundwork laid by Obasi, but is also inspired by Afro-Cobra's experimental visual grammars. It shows two young men in slacks and white short sleeve shirts their dark brown skin extending to the tribal statue, the one in the foreground holds in his hand. They defiantly meet the viewer's gaze, both holding up their free hands, palms outward, <clears throat> to the glass separating them from us. Except this glass appears to be shattering around them. 
meaning that they are not, in fact, so separated. Indeed, glass in this image is the citation of a concept, hence the word being spelled out, not the thing itself. It's as though the bursts of color from their heads and the statue's head dissolve whatever conceptual or physical boundaries might keep them apart from us. Thus, much like Ernest Alexander's drawing of Brooks, Donaldson's art makes room for abstraction while nonetheless evoking concrete existence on the South Side. Adapted into the frontispieces for Annie Allen and Riot, these works serve a similar function even though they are differently rendered. A final detail reveals how Broadside worked with Brooks to make Riot look like how she wanted it to. The chapbook opens with an epigraph by the writer Henry Miller, who in 1944 wrote, it would be a terrible thing for Chicago if this black fountain of life should suddenly erupt. After a friend reassures him that would not happen, Miller concedes, maybe he's right. Maybe the Negro will always be our friend no matter what we do to him. The prose appears in white ink on a black background. Turn the page and the reader sees Alashango to the left and a careful redesign of the cover on the title page. In a clear repost to Miller's wartime reassurance of white racial security, Riot announces Black Chicago will be friendly no more. <clears throat> in an interesting twist, to pull off the effect of the cover shocked <clears throat> um, to pull off the effect of the cover shot going all the way through to the title page, Randall and Brooks worked with a suggestion made by the printer. Something about the original title page design and the way the leaf was folded frustrated Randall. I told the printer we didn't want the last page so arty as to have a, little, a, a red title or a pink tinted page. So the printer came up with a solution. The title page could be tinted a pale yellow, and thus the balloon could be outlined in red with red letters. The page would also echo the tan brown tints of the frontispiece opposite it. Ultimately, this change would afford some color without looking too arty. Randall and Brooks evidently agreed, which allowed them to retain not just the title's coloring, but the balloon shape whose outline contrasts white black on the cover and red pale yellow on the title page. Randall would go on to publish several works by Brooks over the next six years, including chapbooks, edited collections, and her memoir, Report from Part One. But perhaps most significantly, working with Broadside allowed Brooks to revisit the children's book genre. Based on a statement made by her daughter, Nora, Brooks composed a short poem whose central idea is that aloneness is different from loneliness. Leroy Foster, an African-American painter and muralist from Detroit, was tapped to do the illustrations for Aloneness, the book version of the poem. Like Ronnie Solbert, Foster had studied at the Cranbrook Academy of Art in the nearby suburb of Bloomfield Hills. But as someone who had dedicated his life to rendering Black life in exquisite detail, Foster brought a vision to the poem that Solbert understandably did not possess. So while Solbert's illustrations for Bronzeville Boys and Girls are sensitive and non-stereotypical, Foster's drawings for aloneness evince a more positive charge, the deep nurturing of the Black child's self. In Foster's hands, Black childhood is figured more boldly with darker shading in and around racial features, 
but also through more ineffable qualities like gesture and expression, again through shading. The result is a singular contribution to Black Arts Publishing and to Brooks Oeuvre in particular. Brooks' turn toward publishing her own work began in 1974, when she notified Randall that her annual review of Black Arts Criticism and Theory, The Black Position, ought to be transferred to her name. Broadside had published the review's first three issues, from 1971 to 1973, with Brooks as editor. Nearly all the contributors were based in Chicago or had important Chicago connections, and her copyright claim, which suggests, she had, which suggests she had invested her own funds in the project, was just a further step in making the project fully her own. Later in 1974, Randall sent Brooks a bill from Broadside's printer, Harlow Printing Company, for payment. In addition to facilitating the transaction, he offered these words of advice. I hope you'll sell the magazines, not give them away. You can get your money back by selling them. Brooks, it seems, was eager for Broadside's help in matters of printing. When it came to distribution, however, she preferred to make the Black position available on her terms, even if that meant publishing at a loss. That emphasis on distribution explains the literary production of Brooks's late period, one that critics in general and even Brooks specialists rarely have addressed. In the 1980s, Brooks self-published new poetry and reprinted previously published work out of her modest Southside home at 7428 South Evans Avenue. The venture went under different names, but it yielded a number of works that have gone unstudied by scholars. It began appropriately with two short poems and an artist statement organized into Primer for Blacks, published under the imprint Black Position Press in 1980. At a time when most of the Black Arts little magazines and presses were long defunct, Brooks uses this work to mark a continuation of their spirit. We still need the essential Black statement of defense and definition, she writes, and in the title poem, she does just that. Blackness is a title, is a preoccupation, is a commitment Blacks are to comprehend, and in which you are to perceive your glory. At only seven numbered pages, Primer for Black seeks to revive the ethos of the Black arts movement for an uncertain future. By including the word primer in the title, Brooks signals that even adults need to be reminded of their inherent self-worth. Brooks renamed her imprint Brooks Press later in 1980. Under that name, she published Young Poets Primer, Black Love, the combined commemorative poems, Mayor Harold Washington and Chicago, the I Will City, and Very Young Poets. These titles enlarged the community-based vision of Primer for Blacks, which in real life culminated in the 1983 election of Harold Washington as the city's first African-American mayor. After this run of publications, Brooks changed the name of the imprint again, this time to the David Company in honor of her late father, David Anderson Brooks. Under this name, she released the Near Johannesburg Boy and Other Poems, Blacks, Winnie, and Children Coming Home. While the Near Johannesburg Boy and Winnie reflect Brooks's emerging global vision of anti-apartheid activism, she grounds her diasporic consciousness in explicit references to her adopted hometown. The Chicago Picasso 1986, for example, which harks back to her commissioned poem for the public sculptures unveiling in 1967, is situated at the center 
of the near Johannesburg boy. While a section of Winnie has Nelson Mandela's wife proclaim, Donald and Dorothy and William and Mary, Angela, Juan, Zimunia, Kimosha, Black Americans, you wear all the names of the world. One can bet that, given the intimacy of her mode of address, Brooks personally knew someone with each of these names. For most of these publications, Brooks preferred high-quality paper and simple, elegant typefaces. There were not enough funds for coloring or standout effects. But Brooks made an exception for Blacks, a compilation of her creative output at Harper, Broadside, and Third World Press, which had published a handsome edition of her selected poems to disembark in 1981. The layout of Blacks is lifted directly from Harper's selected poems and the world of Gwendolyn Brooks, with newer material added at the end. There's not much inside the book that distinguishes this volume from its predecessors. Instead, it's Brooks's choice of binding that aligns the look of the book with the lived experience of Bronzeville's readers. The volume appears in navy blue leatherette softboards with gold gilt print on the spine and front cover. With this binding, Blacks at 512 pages looks like a Bible. Its design feature is not meant to imply that Brooks thought her word was scripture. Rather, it's meant to suggest how she conceived self-publishing as an opportunity to make her summa suited for everyday use. On any given Sunday, Brooks would have seen neighbors hold, carry, flip through, study, share, and consult their leatherette Bibles. She wanted Blacks to feel Black in the same way those Bibles did. Yet the story behind the production of this cherished volume reveals the possibilities and limitations of Brooks's will to self-publish. Correspondence with Madhubuti from the summer of 1990 shows that, as with Broadside, Brooks had asked Third World Press to facilitate her relationship with its printer. Clarifying where the David Company stood in relation to Third World Press, Brooks wrote, just a printing service, not distributing. This led to a strained exchange where Brooks wrote Madhubuti as both client of his printer and distributor of books to him. Although I don't want a distributor, any kind of distributor, I want to suggest that you keep a larger number of copies of Blacks in your bookstores, followed up by... Incidentally, I hope I'll be able to come to your printer not only with book manuscripts, but with orders also for brochures and broadsides, as with Harlow Printing Company. The friend's disagreement culminated in Brooks outlining what Detroit's Harlow had offered her and what she wanted from Third World Press. My choice of binding, my choice of paper, my choice of print. In general, clear black print, not faded, as in your latest Diop book. If Madhubuti could not facilitate her choice in these matters, and if he wanted Third World Press to do more than mere printing, then Brooks would take her business elsewhere. Her terms were non-negotiable. Tell me frankly if you do not want me to choose my own paper, thick, beautiful, acid-free, print and binding. This was always a part of the freedom I loved about publishing my own books. It is freedom I do not intend to give up. A terse letter from August suggests Brooks pulled the David Company's titles from Third World Press's printer altogether. I'll manage the printing of the rest of my books, Brooks said, hoping that she and Madhubuti would not try to become really serious business associates. But by November 1990, Brooks was willing to compromise. 
asking that her books remain advertisement-free except for possible announcements of her own titles, and that the copyright page would direct reprint permissions requests to her post office box, Brooks offered the catalog to Matabuti. In return, she accepted an option to collect 15% royalty on 3,000 copies of Blacks, the production costs for which Third World Press would assume. When Third World Press published Blacks the following year, it retained Brooks's original design elements and referred to it as the fifth printing. However, shortly thereafter, the press switched to a more financially sensible glossy softcover format while raising the price of the book to 1995. This is the version of Blacks most readers today are familiar with. It's the version that was able to survive the contingencies of the moment, though in doing so, it had to leave behind what made it look like a product by and for Black Chicago. Yet even this transfer did not have the final say on Brooks's commitment to, to designing books for ordinary readers. She scrounged, up, she scrounged up the funds to publish one last book through the David Company. Like Bronzeville Boys and Girls 35 years earlier, Children Coming Home shifts between the first and third person voice as it relates the experiences of different kids on the South Side. Though lacking illustration, the book's cover approximates the black and white marble design of a composition book. Now that design may conjure the dread of homework for some, but once the book is open, the poetry reveals the design's alternate signification as a journal, a record of and resource for children's voices that might otherwise go unheard. Prefaced by Mary Evans' epigraph, Speak the Truth to the People, the book enjoins the reader to hear the truth behind these children's observations and imagine seeing the world through their eyes. In a way then, Brooks's design flips the surface level meaning of the title. Readers might initially think it refers to school children, but as the wisdom of the book unfolds, they realize it is adults who are the children in need of reminding where they come from and where they are going. With this final collection of poems published during her lifetime, Brooks had come full circle, from acceding to Harper's wartime plans for a street in Bronzeville, to designing a book front to back for Bronzeville itself. Over a career spanning four decades, Brooks proved remarkably consistent in the way she used enjambment and alliteration to convey Black people's depth of observation and experience in poetry. What delineates the various stages of her career then is not a change in her poetic technique or a shift in her thematic focus, much less some radical turn in her politics. Rather, the stages are more precisely evidenced by how much control Brooks was able to exercise in creating the right design or fit, as Jubilahiri would have it, for her books. Seen through the lens of design, Brooks' oeuvre can be encountered anew as the desire to share the ordinary beauty of Bronzeville with the world while devising ways to keep that desire grounded to eventually bring it back home. Thank you. Wow, that was fantastic. Um, stunning lecture and I just am so grateful to be here to start the Q&A off for it. Um, you remind us that reading a book is not just reading the text inside the book, but the whole book. And this has just been a stunning example of that. I'd like to kick off the questions for tonight with one of my own. 
And if you would, Kanoe, could you talk about how this um, gradual move to artistic control compares with some of the scenarios that earlier Black writers faced? I'm thinking of Nella Larson and Knopf um, and um, her publications. And I'm also thinking of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Margaret Armstrong and things like Candlelight in Time and the use of photography, which is a bit controversial. Um, how, how, what was open to them? What were the possibilities open to those writers at the time? And how did the choices that they made or other writers generally um, uh, preceding Brooks compare to the moment she found herself in? That's a great question. And in some respects, that is the question of my, my book project, which aims to figure out exactly what design afforded to black writers and what it precluded. And the way I approach the question is this, I think self-publishing is really the crux of the matter for Brooks. That um, though she got off on a pretty good start in terms of critical acclaim, in terms of seeing a street in Bronzeville and Annie Allen and uh, uh, to a certain extent, the Bean Eaters receive critical applause. It, it, I'm not saying she wasn't satisfied with that, but if you look at her archived papers and if you see the trajectory of her work through the lens of design, you understand that it wasn't enough. In other words, getting that critical acclaim wasn't the be-all and end-all for Brooks. And so the other figures you mentioned there have different trajectories, but I think similar realizations about the importance of self-publishing at some point in one's career. Um, that's certainly the case for Dunbar. It was obviously the case for someone like David Walker, <laughs> whose self-publishing venture produced some of the most radical uh, black graphic design and typography we see in the 19th century. But it's all about the different journeys that novelists and poets find themselves on and the degree to which they weigh commercial success, critical acclaim, those two things are not always the same thing. Brooks enjoyed critical acclaim, but not necessarily commercial success. And speaking to readers who ultimately they wanted to speak to, uh, namely uh, Black readers like themselves. And the question of how to get their books or poems or pamphlets or broadsides into the hands of Black readers is something that quite often took these writers away from commercial publishing and uh, when it wasn't in, when it wasn't self-publishing, it was through more accessible formats such as periodicals, which had a, a at least a more plausible chance of getting into the hands of black readers. To to refer to Larson, so self-publishing is just one of the many strategies that authors use to try to bring their work into the hands of black readers like themselves. Wonderful, gosh, thank you for that very thorough and helpful response. We have another question. Um, this one is coming from Susan Gilmore. And she asks, what's your take on the Faith Ringgold's illustrations for the posthumous issue of Bronzeville Boy and Girls? Wonderful. 
um, the multimedia artist and painter Faith Ringgold was commissioned by the Brooks Estate to provide new illustrations for Bronzeville Boys and Girls in 2007. I'm looking around my office because I have it around here somewhere, but I'm, I'm not gonna, uh, um, you, you can certainly uh, look it up for yourself. But this is an important epilogue to my lecture insofar as it shows the continuing life, the afterlife of reprints that I think um, Brooks's daughter, Nora, Nora Brooks Blakely um, is honoring by sort of breathing new life into a book um, with illustrations that are more directly speaking to the experience of, of um, Black children today. And so that came out in 2007, still published by Harper, but it, it reflects an acknowledgement that um, Solbert's illustrations perhaps um, were not enough for the time that we're living in now. And so I, I absolutely love that collection, that edition. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, Ringgold is the, is the mother of um, media theorists and professor Michelle Wallace. So there's kind of a really interesting genealogy of black visual culture and black feminist art that you can kind of track between Ringgold, Wallace and Brooks and Nora. But that's just part of the lovely thing that that edition affords to readers today. So I absolutely love that one. Thank you. Um, we, I think we have time for one more question, although I'm sure we would like to ask many more. This question comes um, from Chris Dingwall who asks, well, first he comments, thank you for the amazing talk. He said he loves the attention to Brooks's attention to book design and to publishing. Um, and he asks, can you speak more about how and where she envisioned her books being sold and read, particularly in connection to your initial remarks about black bookstores? So if you could take that on, we'd be grateful. Thanks for that question. Um, this is something I want to, this is a question I want to um, pursue more fully when we can all travel again <laughs> and I can make a, a trip to Chicago. Um, so Dudley Randall warned her, you know, <laughs> you actually have to sell the magazine in order to make this uh, viable. And we do have evidence of Brooks um, turning around and using Third World Press's printer and then offering the things that were printed to um, Haki Marubudi to sell. I think when it came to her self-publishing enterprise, um, much of the distribution amounted to Brooks herself sending her books to local black bookshops, including Third World Press's storefront. And I will say this, um, to presenting copies of her own books at community events free of charge. Um, uh, Brooks, uh, for purposes of time, I cut out the section where I talked about Brooks's commitment to writers' workshops in Chicago, particularly after that um, uh, Fisk conference. And uh, although she she did participate in workshops earlier in her career, and these workshops were really a, a kind of essential aspect of. Um, 
who she thought she was writing poems for and producing books for. So she would have had her books uh, with her at these workshops and, and knowing Brooks herself, um, she would not necessarily have insisted on, <laughs> you know, paying the cover price for anything. Um, so many of these rare editions come with her signature because she's presenting copies to friends, associates, and kids around the neighborhood. So in the rare books market, if there are any dealers on, uh, on board here, part of the reason why you have a relatively high number of copies with Brooks's signature is that she's bringing these with her to community events. It's not just professors who are asking for her autograph. She's bringing these books with her to community events and signing them, uh, you know, to giving them to friends, to kids, to, to people she's teaching. So this is an essential aspect of um, her legacy, which is not only self-publishing, but taking on distribution and my suspicion, again, I want to back this up with um, archival research, and in this case, I'd have to go not only to Chicago, but to the University of Illinois, which houses um, a, a, a new cache of Brooks's papers, um, even when she, she didn't really make a lot of money, if any money, out of it. Wow. Well, thank you. This, again, this has been a, a fantastic talk. Um, we are recording this talk, so it will be available. Um, on Rare Book School's YouTube channel. And I'm sure that many people will watch it again if they've been watching it this evening. And I just, um, I just wanna say again, this has been splendid. You've really opened our eyes, you've opened my eyes um, to a very exciting history. And I think we look forward to pursuing this more and building our collection at Rare Book School further in these areas. Thank you again.